Authors on the Air. I'm Terry Shepard. Welcome to Authors on the Air. Pamela Fagan Hutchins is one of my indie idols. Over the years, she's cracked the code of the magic mix of great content and savvy marketing to build a loyal following and sell a ton of books. Her website, PamelaFaganHutchins.com, is a textbook example of how to develop lasting relationships with readers. And beyond her chops as a writer, she also teaches others what she's learned. Her publishing success retreat is an essential experience for every would-be indie best-selling author. On top of it all, she is host of the Wine, Women, and Writing podcast on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Her career spans a fascinating array of adventures, and she looks at the world from her home in the Wyoming wilderness. Snaggletooth is book five in her smash hit Patrick Flint series, and it's about to explode onto the scene. And that's what brings her to our microphones today. She normally narrates her own audiobooks, but before we bring her on, I'm taking the liberty of rendering a taste of that new one. Here's a stanza from Pamela Fagan Hutchins' Snaggletooth. Thank God that Patrick Flint was piloting a tripacer. The little plane was the next best thing to a helicopter when it came to short strips. And this strip had suddenly become very, very short. With only a few feet to spare, the tripacer jerked to a standstill, nose tilted down. Patrick wiped sweat from his brow and exhaled. He had been so focused on stopping that he had almost forgotten about the figure that made it necessary. Now he couldn't see it. Dad, his daughter Trisha's voice was taut. Patrick glanced over at her. Her eyes were huge. What is it? Are you okay? You saw that, right? You saw the man on the runway. The man? She nodded. He looked dead. A dead man on the runway. It was hard to believe. Maybe she thought she saw a man, but it was probably a deer, but he had to check it out. Stay in the plane. Patrick turned off the switch, advanced the throttle to full forward, then closed it. He opened the lightweight door, not waiting for the propeller to stop spinning, something he would not normally ever have done. He climbed out and jumped to the ground, peering through the distortion caused by the blades. He still couldn't identify the figure. Giving the propeller a wide berth, he ran around his aircraft until he could see the figure in front of it. And, to his surprise, he saw that Trish was right. It was a man with an emphasis on was, an American Indian, and what was left of him wasn't a pretty sight. Pamela Fagan Hutchins, what a brilliant opening. How can you be so consistently good? <laughs> oh, Terry, you silver-tongued devil. <laughs> that was beautiful uh, narration, by the way. Uh, every time I listen to you, I just get these Casey Kasem... <laughs> Slash, but better vibes, you know, it's like you embodied Patrick Flint, but I, I really, I don't know where these stories come from. I literally, I'll be sitting there thinking, I've got to write a book. 
what is it going to be about? And I'll come up with a title and maybe a cover and thinking somewhere along the line, I'm bound to have an idea. And then just boom, it'll just come to me and grow and morph into something that suddenly seems so real that you can't help but sit down at the keyboard and capture it before it scampers away from you. So I wish I knew. <laughs> I've been a pilot for 30 years. I've never heard a description of an aircraft landing described better. Do you fly as well? Oh, God, no. Um, but, but my father, who is the, um, he is the, you know, the Patrick Flint in real life um, person did. And as a child, I was forced to go flying with him a lot. And so I not only heard him talking about flying at meal times, but I watched him side by side in these small planes as I vomited into a bag. <laughs> so you were Trish. You were the Trish I character. Trish, yeah. <laughs> this particular series, unlike many of my others, I didn't even pretend I was writing about other people. This is straight up my family in Wyoming in the 1970s. And I wrote it as an homage to my father, who at the time was desperately ill, had three months to live with a grim cancer diagnosis. And I wanted to do something to honor him and to capture such a protagonist worthy man in fiction. And um, I wrote as fast as I could, put it in his hand. And lo and behold, he is kicking cancer's butt. It's uh, several years later now, and we collaborate on these books. So I actually wrote this scene Prior to having asked him how to land a plane, I went and researched thinking, I just, I don't want to have to make him do it. I'm going to impress him. I'm going to show him I know how to land a plane. And um, I found an old brochure online and it step-by-step step, how to fly your, and it happened to be a super cub, how to fly your super cub. And I went through and I did it and I made one mistake that he corrected. I was pretty proud of myself, but he's like, where did you get this? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more about Snaggletooth. Well, Snaggletooth um, is actually my renaming of a mountain that's right on the skyline behind me. On the, I live on the face of the Bighorn Mountains, the eastern face in Wyoming. And there's a, 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 a mountain called Blacktooth in the range, in the Cirque of Peaks. Uh, also the name of a beer brewery here in town. So, you know, you may have heard of it either way if you've heard of it. Uh, and it's a book where I take the Flint family, a little more mature, a little bit more seasoned and weathered with every book in the series, and I throw them back into one of their quintessential mountain adventures. But this time, as they are um, trail riding up to have a family camp out on um, Highland Park, right in the shadow of uh, the Black Tooth Peak itself, a plane goes down and they uh, stumble across a survivor and the whole story explodes um, from there. The part that you have just read is the precursor murder that leads us up to it because yes, newsflash, the guy on the runway is definitely dead, definitely murdered and, and ultimately everything ties together. But the real Flint um, intersection with it happens when their adventure goes awry. We learn a lot more about your protagonist, Patrick Flint, in this story. Take us back to how you created him in the first place. Well, Patrick, for me, as I said, was an homage to my dad. And so when my dad was ill, I sat down with him and said, I want to write a book. I want it to be our family in the 70s with murders that are inspired by the geography, the times, the economy, the everything that is Wyoming in that era. 
and didn't happen to us. But other than that, I want it to be our family straight up. And so, Dad, if I were to write a book like this, what would be important to you? And he said, you know, I really don't like stories that glorify the bad guys. So I don't want a serial killer point of view or, or molesting children. He said, cool. I don't like that either. And he said, and I really like a redeeming hero. And I said, cool, we, we can keep him good enough, even though he'll be authentic and have flaws. And he said, I like adventure. I like um, the outdoors. And I'm thinking, yeah, and I know you, you're obsessed with American Indians or Native Americans, as we'd say now. But back then, we'd call them American Indians. And you're obsessed with animals and you're cheap as hell. And you're always early instead of on time. And you can't help from getting in trouble because you just push everything and everyone too far. And he's a physician. Uh, like my father was. And so I took these traits and the traits of the family members and I got his great stories. So the opening scene, other than finding a dead guy on a runway, is stuff that really was real and happened between my dad and me. And in every book, I started with something that's a real Peter Fagan story handed off to Patrick Flint. In the first book in the series, it's a, it's a scene where uh, the doctor is, unbeknownst to him, covering for the vet who's on vacation. And they call him into the hospital to um, deal with someone's broken leg. And it turns out to be a horse in the parking lot. And Terry, I got to tell you something funny here. I recently had a reviewer who was saying, I can't read this book because the first scene is so unrealistic. That would never happen. And I thought, gosh, you must live in a big city somewhere because bless your heart, um, not only did that happen? It still does. You know, vets everywhere cover for doctors and vice versa in rural communities. You just pull together and do what you can. So anyway, real stories, real people and murders that were borrowed from inspiration from the times and the place. And, and that's where they came from. The big surprise has been how much fun they are to write and how much other people have uh, enjoyed them because I really wrote them for my family. Pamela Fagan Hutchins is our guest. Snaggletooth, the fifth Patrick Flint thriller, debuts on March 17th. What is it about the 70s that resonates with you? A simpler time. Um, and then let me let me start by saying that seven the 70s in Wyoming isn't like the 70s in the rest of the world or the country. People here weren't hip and cool. People here were throwback to an earlier time. It's still we look out around us today in Wyoming and we think it's so 50 years ago and we love it. Um, so it's not like the, um, you know, the, the nightlife scene in New York with drugs and, you know, halter tops and things like that. It's just a simpler time and there's no fax machines and there's no cell phones. And if it happens to you up in the wilderness, it may be weeks before someone knows that something has gone wrong. I loved writing a book where you had a lot of the modern um, conveniences and modern things about life, like airplanes, but yet you absolutely could put someone completely out of touch with the rest of the world and force them to be self-sufficient, um, which is one of the things that, that for me made it really fun to write. In addition to your skills as an author, you're also a great mentor, Pamela, and your publisher's success retreat is something that I can't recommend highly enough. You will, if you go to this event on Zoom, come out with your head spinning <laughs> because there is so much that you get in such a short period of time. Did you write first for yourself or for an audience? 
Um, I think that I wrote first for myself. Uh, I had a goal to write a novel. I'd always been a writer. I'd write, written nonfiction. But my, um, my husband and I actually were having a conversation when we were first together. And he said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And at the time, I, Terry, I was 40 years old and thinking, I think that I'm fully baked here. You know, I'm, I'm good. And he said, no, what dreams haven't you fulfilled yet that I can get out of your way and help make happen? And I said, OK, well, I want to run a marathon and I want to write a novel. And so on our first anniversary, we ran a marathon together. And on our second anniversary, he said, where's your damn book? <laughs> and so the next year I wrote a novella that was really intended to be get this monkey off my back because it was much less scary to run a marathon or the five that came later than it was to risk outing myself as a bad novelist. And so I wrote a novella that wasn't good enough. He loved it. And he pushed and he pushed. I wrote a full novel. And by the time I got really open about it, I'd written four. Um, so at that point in time, I was hoping someone would want to read them, but I had no idea who. I was just writing stories. And uh, now I think it's still the same way for me, even at the incredible pace that I now write. I may be thinking like I did with Patrick Flint about the kind of book my dad would like. But when it comes to writing that story, I'm just I'm just in a world I'm enthralled with. Um, when I sit down and, and I'm really capturing it, it's because there's a story moving my head so fast that I'm excited about. And I want to keep pushing the characters buttons. And and it, it really becomes what do I want instead of what do they want? Now, I will go back towards the end and think, have I met readers' expectations? Um, is there anything I need to consider or change because this isn't going to sit well um, and that wouldn't be fair to them because they're really invested in the series? But when I write it, it's very it's very Pamela-centric. <laughs> are there specific traits that you found are common with the audience that reads your stuff? Um, I think that... I thought I knew who read my stuff when I was writing the What Doesn't Kill You series and the, the Super series and the little individual mini series within it with my female protagonists. Um, I thought that I wrote for women that uh, enjoyed romance and enjoyed mysteries that were oh, probably 50 years old and older, maybe 45 plus, and that generally speaking were from smaller communities because that's what fascinated me. But then I wrote Patrick Flint and all of a sudden I had a whole lot of male readers, male readers from very um, ranching, farming, um, rural Western backgrounds or people that wanted to, you know, had a romantic feeling about those backgrounds. But my women came along with me and I discovered then a whole new, let's call it a post Janet Daly uh, crowd, you know, that was also looking for stories that had strong families in them that were PG rated because that was important to my dad, I should say as well, that there were not offensive curse words and as little cursing as possible, that there were not um, explicit sex scenes, that the characters might be annoying and do things that the traits weren't necessarily positive, but they weren't all running around cheating on each other, you know, et cetera, that this was 
a family like ours. And this really was what my family was like, right? That they were a family like ours and that we could have plenty of things happen without having to make them bad too. So I found an older audience. I found an older audience that was more like my father. Um, and I know who they are because in this world of modern technology, they talk to me, you know, they follow me on my Facebook page and they comment and they tell me where they live and they tell me which stories in the books happened to them too. And it's been fun because with COVID, which you can't really use those two words in the same sentence, fun with COVID. Eh. Um, what's been a, a, an unexpected blessing with COVID is that the older generation has been forced if they want to stay connected to adopt technology in a way that maybe they hadn't uh, fully before. And so now my audience who also a difference from them in the past is they read a lot more paperbacks who may order my books on Amazon through the mail um, will get online and talk to me. And it, it's been so much fun to connect with them. So I didn't really ever think of myself as writing for an audience that is this age. I mean, I have readers that are, you know, in their eighties that, you know, we're really excited and on, on the internet and talking to me. Um, but by picking an older era and, and by, um, by really, instead of trying to bring out the worst, bring out some of the best about this family, um, I found some new friends. <laughs> Pamela Fagan Hutchins is our guest PamelaFagansHutchins.com is the website. We'll dig deeper into how she engages with her audience in a moment. But your love story with Eric Hutchins is something that just radiates joy. How does he inspire your art? Oh, my goodness. Okay, first of all, I do have the very best husband in the world. And um, I was not a kid that grew up thinking that the fairy tale was for me. And I certainly did not do a fairy tale um, job of my first marriage. So I just don't know how I ended up being the poster child for romanticism, but my husband is just that awesome. We're really, we're very lucky. And he inspires me in a lot of ways. Um, there's always a piece of Eric in my male characters. He really pushes me to write authentic male characters. He will literally say a 13 year old boy, Pamela, they don't have any thoughts going on in their head. You've got him thinking about stuff. They don't think about anything. They're just there. <laughs> so, you know, I'll go back with my 13-year-old boy and go, okay, we got to make you really vacant head. And I, I say this with great love for my sons, who I thought actually thought things when they were that age, but they're like, no, mom, not really. So he helped me with things like that, but he also gives me the funniest stories without meaning to. Anytime a male character does something really, really, really dumb, it's usually because my husband did. So thank you, honey. For, for inspiring me in that way. Actually, I had a contest recently for readers and I said, out of my books, which books um, are, have me in them and which have Eric in them? And so, you know, because my readers all really know my husband because he's all over my social media and he is my storyboard partner and he appears on video and interviews with me and things. I call him my emotional support human. Um, but he, um, he, the readers got it. Right. But you couldn't have missed it because whenever there's something goofy in a book, it's Eric. But really, you really see Eric and Hank in the Maggie Killian series. Um, and, and, and they really nailed that one. You wrote five books last year. How do you create such consistently excellent content? 
Terry, it was an out-of-body experience. I do not know. I hope it's good because at the time I feel so rushed. Um, I, I was writing under a deadline at the time, um, thinking that my father didn't have long to live. And I wanted to create a story arc for him um, and put a certain number of books in his hands. And then they started doing well. So I started thinking, well, gosh, let's just keep this going. And and then my agent said, could you write me one more? Could you just squeeze that in real quick right here? Just write me an extra book. Um, so it just was an accident. But there are just so many stories in my head. Um, when I think about writing, it's about not having enough time, like not having enough time to write all the stories. Because every time I write a new character in a book, that character just becomes real. And then they have their own stories and there's series with characters I've never even written that are begging to be written. So it's this cacophony, you know, in my head of voices, um, hopefully in a non uh, institutionalized three years from now way, but there's a lot of voices in there. And, um, and so it's just hard not to write them. It's hard not to try to keep up with what they're asking me to do. Since we talk about the business of books here on this podcast, walk us briefly through your process from creation to publication. How does it go? Um, well, at any given time, there's more than one book in, cre- in the stages of creation. But for one book, what will happen is that uh, my husband and I will talk about uh, uh, characters and we'll talk about setting and we'll talk about the setting, both in terms of time and place and what mystical, magical, religious, etc., cultural issues relate to that time. And we'll really, for a very long time, just chat about, as if they're real, characters and setting, looking for what would uniquely be crimes or murders that would occur within that setting um, and, and wouldn't happen that way anywhere else in the world. So we're looking for a unique murder without a sense necessarily it being sensational. And we're looking for the things about the setting that are going to historically and culturally make magic in the book. Once we have that, I'll sit down and do an outline. And that outline sometimes will be 15 pages and sometimes it'll be half of an envelope. You know, it'll be whatever it takes to get me to the point where I'm pushed off the edge and I have to start writing. So there's not a set way. I do have a set way I outline, but it doesn't go down the same way every time. Uh, And sometimes I have to go back to the outline and I have to um, push it further to get me over humps. But at some point, I'll just start writing. And at that point, I'll set a timer. And that timer is 30 days. Once I start a draft, I give myself 30 days to write the draft to completion. For me, a completed draft is usually 47 to 55,000 words long. And I don't know how that happened. Um, It just is. That's what it takes for me to do a rough treatment with with all the storylines that are going to go into it and all the characters. Then I'll take a deep breath. I'll usually take couple of weeks off. Sometimes not. Sometimes I turn around the next day and I set the timer button again for 30 days and I rewrite it. And in that time, I try to cycle through it as few times as possible. My goal is twice. That never happens. Um, But I will rewrite it. It ends up being somewhere between 78 and 95,000 words. And I will then turn around 
and give it to my husband who I, who will then race through it as I race through it. And we try to fix the story and then I'll turn around one more time and I'll pass through trying to fix anything we missed and language and sparkle. And at that point, we know the story really well. We know what's missing and I'm literally dropping in magic. You know, if that makes sense where Eric will say, you know, there's just no mysticism to this book. And I'm a big believer in everyday magic. So there's got to be something in there, whether overt or whether cleverly disguised, this magical, uh, you know, the magic of life. And a lot of times we'll find what that should have been right there at the end. And other times not. Other times it's clear from the beginning. When I wrote Scapegoat, um, uh, this last year, which was number four in the series. I knew all along what the magic was in this book. It felt very clear to me from the research I did. And I research every book before I write it to. I left that out. Part of the process is part of the looking for inspiration is um, researching geography, researching history and culture, researching um, for the crimes that happened during that era. You know, so what was currently happening? Um that was actually a big part of Snaggletooth, was looking for things that were happening in the late 1970s. It's how I found a, a particular plane crash that only makes a cameo in this book. But anyway, sorry, I digress. The research is a big part, and I could really um, waste a lot of time on that because it's fun because, you know, that part doesn't hurt. You're, you're having fun and you're discovering instead of having to recreate. But that's basically the process. Then I hand it off to a copy editor who does her best to find anything Eric and I have missed and who then also tries to take out all the errors. Although I write a pretty clean book. Um, I'm a grammar goddess. And then uh, she gives it back to me. And Terry, I have a team of 400 proofreaders that also um, are tremendous supporters of mine and who um, just move mountains for me. And they literally, for no pay whatsoever, some of them very thoroughly will proofread this book and send me back their comments. How did you find them? Um, they were newsletter subscribers. And I basically about two years ago, sent out a newsletter and said, limited opening for being a proofreader and advanced reviewer and free my books for as long as I'm writing them go. And they wrote to me originally there was 700, but I culled down the list to those that were serious and that were really, you know, participating and they're fantastic. They're really fantastic. And they're so diverse that every now and then I'll like, for instance, in this last book, I needed people to know about rock climbing and mountain mountaineering. And I needed people to know about planes and you name it, uh, things that, I can research and I can ask the people in my life about, and I never go cold on a topic. I always consult experts, but still those, those little details that a last second detailed read catches. And there's always somebody that catches something wonderful. So anyway, then the proofreaders do it. And then the very last step is that I record the audio, which is a slow mo you're reading every word aloud and you go, how did we miss that? Oh, Does that happen God. often? Oh, well, not as much this one so far, but what will happen is that I will say, I am using the word jutted too much in this book. And I'll go in and I'll edit the book to take out half the word 
times I've used the word jutted and change it on the fly as I'm recording it and make that change as I go. So it's one of the reasons that I am super excited that the, you know, the uh, performer in me has found her way out and get gotten into recording audiobooks because it's the most fantastic way to do your final review of your book. And it's for me, really made my books tighter and I love it. And I love having a chance to say, no, that sucks. I'm not publishing it that way and make that last second change that I thought was so great a month before. (laughs) Pamela Fagan Hutchins is our special guest. Snaggletooth is the new one in the Patrick Flint series, the fifth book. Every one of them is excellent. You can find one through four on amazon.com. Snaggletooth debuts on March 17th. You are one of the best promoters I've ever met. Let's talk about the business side of your work. How did you learn to sell? Um, I had a consulting company. And so I had already realized that selling is about doing a really good job and not being afraid to talk to people, but that it is not about saying, will you please buy? That the fastest way to get people not to buy something and to turn off their ears is to ask them to buy it. And that it was about networking. It was about meeting people. It was about charming them with your uh, engagement with them so that they were willing to go an extra step and maybe take a chance and devote their time and read your book. Now, as, as, as I've sold more books, as I've needed to expand beyond past that, I've had to get good at advertising and the same principles apply. It's not about saying buy my book. It's about providing quality in a way that engages that particular reader as they see the ad. It is charming or whatever it is they're looking for, thrilling or whatever emotion it is that they want to have triggered by their reading experience, the ad triggers and then gives them the opportunity to go and satisfy their that itch themselves without feeling like you're pushing them to do it. Uh, It does require you to understand these days a lot of technology. I was a management information systems major way back in the day, which was like information technology light um, before I went to law school. So I'm comfortable with learning and growing with technology. And I'm also really into statistics and numbers. Um, So for me, that side of it, which I thought I was going to hate and which is the very opposite of the creative process is satisfying and fun. So I've really embraced the online advertising. What I have used it for not only is to find new readers, but to bring people into my newsletter, to bring them into my Facebook discussions. So I look at every dollar that I spend on, um, on advertising, not just as Does this have a positive return on investment in the sense that I know I'm selling enough books to more than justify its cost, but also is it bringing long-term relationships with readers uh, to me, either through my newsletter or Facebook engagement or some other way in which we develop a bond and stick together so that I can continue to have the opportunity to present them with new books that they can choose or not to choose to read. And and hopefully as long as they enjoy that experience, they stick with me. In your publishing success retreat, you 
treat each of your books as a mutual fund. Describe how you maximize <laughs> revenue from each publication. Oh, goodness. Well, I, I first start with the idea that what can be measured can be improved. And you absolutely have to know uh, what it is that you make off of each book, especially the first book in a series, and not just what you make off that book by selling it, but what you make off that book by what you will sell six months in the future because you sold this one today. And that that has a numerical value and that that value then dictates what your ad spend is today. So I am investing today with a future expectation that for everyone that buys Patrick Flint, that 60% of them will end up buying every book in the series, right? And I am also knowing that a certain number of them are going to not be an ebook reader. They're going to be a paperback reader. And here's the value of selling that paperback. And some of them aren't going to buy on Amazon, but by running these ads, it gets people interested in the book and they're going to go over to Barnes and Noble and buy it, uh, the paperback. And some people only want to buy in their library, but by putting the um, information out there, they know to go and ask their librarian to get it for them, you know, etc. And so I think of all the ways in which I can profitably monetize an idea. And by that, I mean me personally, you know, if, if, it, if the day comes where I can get people to help me with film or with other types of, of ways to monetize an idea, then that's super. But right now I look at what can I do? What can Pamela Fagan Hutchins do that makes it where that three or four month process with that book, sitting my butt in the chair, stressing and tearing my hair out and biting my fingernails, pays off later in the future, um, then I need to do those things. I need to know how to get the word out and I need to know how much to invest in it to achieve its potential. We need to schedule a separate visit together where we can do a deep dive into your publishing success retreat uh, because we could spend a half an hour just talking about that. What do your beta readers like best about Snaggletooth? Mm. Most of them say, oh, my gosh, I, 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 it was really, really thrilling and I couldn't put it down. Um, I, I have found with this series that while I tend to write mysteries that are a slow burn, meaning I don't like to start with a bloody murder on the first page. It's just not my style. It's probably one of the reasons that I'm not somebody that is traditionally published because I write the books I want to write. And if you don't like to read those kind of books, that's super awesome because there are other writers that write what you like to write and you should go read those. But I like to de delve into the this character and the setting um, and something that draws you in to caring about them before I then jerk you around on the journey. That being said, with Patrick Flint, what I found is that with these adventure type mysteries and most of them, not every one of them are, but most of them um, involve an adventure that I had a knack for writing suspense thriller, um, not psychological suspense thriller, but just straight up adrenaline. And it's fun. So anyway, that's what they're talking about is that this just absolutely took them by the throat and didn't let them go that and in, in in the ending there's there's 
definitely character growth going on in this one. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and there's, I can't give too much away, but um, this one puts some of the characters more on an emotional test than they've been put at in the past at the end of the book. And honestly, I'll tell you, Terry, as, as somebody that's also writing thriller series, you know, I'm, I want to give people a satisfying conclusion and yet make them want to read the next book. Um, because of the type of book I was writing, I don't want to kill off their darlings, you know, the beloved characters and things like that and jerking them around too much. But we are five books into the series now, and I'm feeling a little bit more like I can test the characters and that the readers will stick with me. And so with this book, I put some of the beloved characters to a little bit more of a test and, um, and, and some bad things happen in this book that haven't in the past. And that will make us dig deeper as we go through the series, because otherwise a series becomes more of just reading the exact same thing. Who wants to do that? Right. I want a new story, but I also want real people that are going to, live on in my imagination. And that means they need to grow and experience hardships. And I don't want to say change, but grow, you know, through um, and develop. And so you'll really see that in this book. And the, the beta readers liked that, which was a huge relief. I had originally gone even harder um, at the ending. And my husband said, let's save that for the next book, honey. Let's not. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, you're going deeper with them, but let's let's not do it all at once. <laughs> Pamela Fagan Hutchins is a true Renaissance woman where publishing is concerned. Tell us about Skipjack. How did that come about? Wow, Skipjack. That came about um, because when my husband and, and I first were embarking on this writing journey together, we weren't yet story partners. I hadn't published any books. I was the lawyer who was writing in secret, you know, in my pajamas um, on weekends and nighttimes and things like that. And he bought me a guide to literary agents for Christmas. And I was like, oh, you're so sweet. Thank you. I'm glad you believe in me. Six months later, he said, the world's changing. You're an entrepreneur and sweetie, I love you, but you're a control freak. Um, throw that thing away. Don't I pretend I didn't give that to you. Let's do this together. Let's you and me embark on this. And I'm thinking, so you're saying you don't think I'm good enough to be traditionally published? You know, what, what are you saying? And he's like, no, I'm saying you're too special to me to be that unhappy. And you, you aren't the kind of person that's going to be happy in that environment. At least not now, at least not as a debut novelist. So he talked me into it. And at the time um, we uh, did it, it was just us. And over the years, it has become us plus a really cherry picked group of authors that wanted to do independent together, that wanted a non-traditional publishing company. And so we added our uh, we added another author last year. We've mostly published mystery suspense, although with those authors, if they branch out and do something different, we'll do that with them if they'd like. Um, so we have Ken Oda, Rebecca Olin, Marcy McKay, Gay Yellen, um, and they're just fantastic. And it's fun to try to look for talent, right? To read other people's work and think about, 
you know, how could I, do I want to help this person? And how could I help this person? And when you find somebody you're super excited about, um, it's a cool feeling. I can see why it would be fun to be an agent or an acquiring editor and to get that. Oh my gosh, this is, this is something I'm super excited about. It's totally different from being excited about your own story, which really, you never really are. You always feel insecure and (laughs) torn up about your own story, but you can look at someone else's and go, man, I wish I'd written that. Let's get philosophical for a minute. How do you see yourself evolving over the next uh, few years as a writer and a person? Um, I think I'm reaching, I'm 54. I turned 54 this week and my husband is semi-retired and we live in this beautiful, rugged place. Terry and I were talking before we went on. It's minus 25 or it was before we got on the phone. It might be minus A beautiful 25. day in Wyoming. Yeah. It's a Thursday. You know, that's what we say here. It's like other people say, this is like a polar vortex. And we're like, no, it's, it's a Thursday. <laughs> anyway, there's, it's snowing. It's beautiful. We are really athletic people. We like to snowshoe and ski and cross country ski and horseback ride and hike and camp. And I want to make more time to take care of ourselves and, and to be with each other at the same time as I continue to write. So I think my pace is going to change with writing. I'm not going to do any more five book years. Um, I'm going to keep going. Um, but maybe three a year, maybe, you know, which other writers are going, that's insane. It's way too fast. Honey, for me, that's slowing down. So anyway, I'm going to slow down a little bit. I'm going to rely more on, um, on my husband to work with me and we are going to spend time with loved ones and we're going to spend time with each other and we're going to live fully and presently. And that's, I think going to, if nothing, I think it's going to help my writing. I think that I think it's going to appear in my story. So we'll see how it changes that, but I want this to be the decade of adventure and togetherness you know, when you read my Patrick Flint books and know that they're an homage to my dad and a lot of people think, wow, that's an adventurous man. Well, it rubbed off on his children. Um, (laughs) So, you know, Monday for my birthday, my husband and I got on our snowmobile in minus 12 degrees and we went up into the mountains. We didn't see a single soul the entire time. We said, what are we going to do? We had the snowshoes strapped on the back. We saw an area that looked pretty and we parked the snowmobile and took off in the woods. And, <laughs> and you know, two hours later, we're like, okay, that was fun. And uh, that's what we think is fun. And other people are like, you weren't on a trail. You, nobody knew where you were. Oh my God. And I was like, those books you're reading, <laughs> I can relate to them. <laughs> So I think that's what's in store for us. Um, I hope that the books continue to to inspire me and grow with me. Um, And I hope that I'd love to see them. um, I'd love to see them in film. You know, to me, these characters are real. I'd like to see them on the screen. But even if they're not, I'm going to keep writing them. Um, I just am going to live the adventures while I do it. Your readers, many of them have been with you for a long time. What's the secret of a long-lasting relationship? Ah, well, you know, I think this actually was coming up in a Facebook post I did yesterday. The idea of kindness, the idea of respect. Um, And I love my readers. They're, 
you know, there are a, a growing group of people that aren't always just like me and in some ways are, are a lot like me. Um, but I respect their tastes. I respect their interests. I, I literally, when I, when I go to post on Facebook, you know, I know we all try to present the glamorous side of our lives. Ha ha ha. I think I'm going to give them what's real. Yesterday I posted a picture of me in my, um, audio, my recording studio. Currently I'm recording in the coat closet. And so I took a really, really hot, sexy picture of myself. I'm kidding. I was in my pajamas with a fleecy over. <laughs> That's how we do it, right? When nobody's yeah, looking. I haven't showered in two days. And, uh, you know, I don't wear any makeup. And I just shoot, shoot a selfie. And I think that they appreciate the authenticity and that I'm not trying to say my life is cooler than yours. My life is pretty cool. I mean, Very I'm cool. not going to lie. Yeah. Um, you know, I have really cool friends that, that are famous and I've got um, a really neat lifestyle that is super adventurous and fun and that's beautiful. So ain't going to kid on that, but I'm going to show them the real me and I'm going to uh, respect the real them. And I think that, I don't know, I think that they, I think they buy into that. They know I'm not pulling their leg. The last question I always ask every guest, Pamela, is this one. If you could go back in time and give some advice to your 16-year-old self, what would you tell that young woman? <laughs> Break up with that boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing I'd say. <laughs> There's a story there. <laughs> That's 10 years you're never going to get back. Um, but um, I think that I'd say... Follow your dreams and be less practical. Now, that being said, nothing that I currently have in my life would have happened if I'd chosen a different path. So I would, you know, hold on. Maybe I'd just say, do it all like you're going to do it, sweetie. You're going to be fine. There you go. Because I would not want to risk not being right where I am right now. I really, I'm, I'm the woman who won the the lottery as far as happiness is concerned, both with my relationship and our wonderful kids and my family and where we live. And I don't want to risk it. So yeah, she made some really bad choices, but they led to a good place. Pamela Fagan Hutchins.com is the website. She's active on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, any place that's cool. You're going to see this woman pop up. Uncool woman. <laughs> any place that's cool, you're going to see this uncool woman. <laughs> Snaggletooth, book five in the Patrick Flint series debuts on March 17th. If you're an author, be sure to visit PamelaFaganHutchins.com and check out her publishing success retreat on the website. And if you've never tasted her art, you're in for a treat. Pamela, it's been great to be with you. Thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you, Terry. I'm, what a blessing to have met you at BoucherCon uh, two years ago. You are awesome. I wish you the most fantabulous, successful time yourself. Thanks for having me on. Authors on the Air can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud. We invite you to explore the many other podcasts that focus on the craft aggregated at the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Our theme music was written by Pavlo Butorin. I'm Terry Shepard, and I'll see you in the next chapter.